You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to 3CR's Radioactive Show. This show was produced on the lands of Naitahu, Ngāti Māmoi and Waitaha at Ōhineho, or Littleton, in Aotearoa, for 3CR, which is located on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung lands. I pay my respects to elders past and present across these sovereign nations, whose enduring right to self-determination continues to this day. The Radioactive Show is distributed across the stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network and brought to you with the financial support of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. My name is AC. To start the show, I just want to send much solidarity and strength to the Bangla people who have have been fighting to stop a nuclear waste dump on their country at Napindee Station, close to Kimber in South Australia. They were in court this week, and if you'd like to know how to support their struggle, please check out www.melbournefo.org.au forward slash nuclear and scroll down to the anti-nuclear news section, where there's an article on their court case and the many ways that you can support. March 11, 2023 marks the 12th anniversary of the devastating Tōhoku earthquake and tsunami which caused the disaster at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. This year, Tokyo Electric Company, or TEPCO, is pushing forward with plans to release 1.3 million tonnes of radioactive waste water into the Pacific Ocean. On today's show, we hear more from a panel of independent scientific experts who are assisting Pacific Island Forum members regarding Japan's plans to release the wastewater. This show is the second part of a two-part series featuring the scientific panel, and I recommend checking out the first part, which is on our podcast page at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. The panel was originally recorded on January 18th, 2023, as part of a seminar hosted by the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat. We begin with Dr. Robert Richmond, Research Professor and Director at Kualo Marine Laboratory in Hawaii, who explains the impact the radioactive wastewater release would have on marine life and human health. He speaks first about the long-lived radionuclides like carbon-14, which has a half-life of 5,730 years. Some of these radionuclides are extremely long-lived with very long half-lives. they even make me look young in, uh, in comparison, which is saying something. But if you look then at carbon and hydrogen as the basis for two of them, they easily get taken up into the beautiful phytoplankton. Now, these are tiny microscopic plants that live in the ocean. Uh, the cloudy gray and green water you see off of Tokyo, off of San Francisco, off of New York, off of any developed area is due to the abundance of phytoplankton. And these things immediately take up Um, a variety of radionuclides, but carbon and hydrogen in particular. Uh, These form the basis of most food webs and the zooplankton, microscopic animals that feed on the plants, and they become the food source for everything from larval fish. And then there's the direct link into people. And so this is what I really want to point out. 
is that there is a direct biological pathway by which radionuclides get into the environment. Um, they get taken up by organisms. They get pulled up through the various food uh, connections in the ocean, and they eventually get to people. And this really matters in terms of public health and chemistry. First, we'll start with the chemistry. Many of the things that we've been presented um, that um, Ken and Arjun and Ferenc talked about is treating um, this disaster, which was so unfortunate, as a chemical problem. Um, as a biologist, I always look at things from that biological perspective. If the ocean were a sterile glass-walled vessel, the chemistry of dilution would make sense. As soon as you add living creatures to the mix, which is what the ocean is full of, then you get away from dilution and you get into biological concentration. And there is the concern we have, um, is how this stuff is taken up and then how it moves its way into people. The other thing that you'll see throughout the reports that we picked apart is a lot of focus in on what's called low-level radiation emitters, beta emitters. Beta, um, there are basically alpha, beta, and gamma emitters. We won't go into it here. Um, can talk a little bit more about the radiation. Even though beta emitters are considered relatively low energy and um, beta particles can be blocked um, fairly easily, there's a difference between whether it's an external or an internal exposure. And if you eat things that have beta emitters in them and they get to you inside, your cells are no longer protected. And that's a very big concern we have. So treating everything as a chemical problem without looking at the biological realities is one of the major concerns we've all discussed. And when we look at an ocean full of plants and animals, with over 1.3 million tons of radioactive water being planned to be released into the ocean, we know these things will get picked up. Um, there was a study done uh, on tuna that showed that uh, within a year of the um, disaster that occurred in 2011, uh, some tuna that were sampled off of San Diego and California had cesium that could be directly tied to Fukushima. And again, the quantity, quantity quality, and distribution does matter. Um, but what is indicative is that you can move things by ocean currents, but they also move around with uh, uh, animals in the ocean. And pelagic fish move all across these oceans as well. And that's why we consider this to be very much a transboundary issue, is that this water will not remain within the territorial waters of Japan. And that's why it is totally appropriate uh, for the Pacific Island Forum to be concerned, because we know already uh, that organisms that were exposed are within these exclusive economic zones, and they are a concern going forward. So again, this linkage between environmental health and human health, all of the things that matter. I've had the good fortune of being able to work in the Pacific Islands for 44 years now. Um, among my more interesting um, experiences, was I lived and did my doctoral dissertation research on Enoetak Atoll, 1980, 81, 82. Some of you may be familiar, that was a nuclear testing site, one of many um, throughout the Pacific Islands. And as Secretary General Puna said in the beginning, there is a long history of the Pacific Islands um, being the home for testing of uh, everything from nuclear weapons to um, discharges that are being proposed now. And uh, for all of these problems to fall on the Pacific Islands, the people who call these islands and the surrounding ocean home is a real tragedy. Um, this affects food security, um, cultural identity and practices. Fishing and ocean activities are the core of many Pacific Island cultures and societies. 
And when we begin to interfere uh, with the health and safety and the ability for people to have access to healthful uh, marine resources, that becomes an issue of food security, cultural identity, community health. Um, it affects their economies. These are very important issues to be raised for the fisheries. Um, it deals with ecological integrity, that all of these units are interconnected, and something that we all uh, realize that this is not only um, transboundary, but it's transgenerational. When we look at the half-lives of some of these radionuclides, this will be going on for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and generations to come. And that's been one of the features I've so much enjoyed in working with Pacific Island leaders is their effort to always look at what today's actions mean to future generations. Um, a common denominator we have among all of us who are on this panel, uh, we can be identified as scientists, uh, but we're also parents. And so the way in which we look at things is not only as an academic enterprise, but rather what legacy do we leave for the future? And the Pacific Islands have always had incredible leadership in being able to demonstrate the need for intergenerational responsibility, which is really the core of environmental um, sustainability. How do we meet today's needs without compromising the needs of future generations? Um, and so this is, I'm going to nerd out a little bit here, you know, as a scientist that I am. Um, but the take home point is that the policies that we use today are simply not kept up with scientific advancements. Science is advancing on a weekly, monthly, almost daily basis. And yet many of the policies that are being used now, including the ones that we've been up against with the International Atomic Energy Agency and the partners in this effort now are simply outdated. They don't reflect the best available science, the knowledge we have today. Um, much has been said about uh, low level radiation beta emitters um, my upper point in yellow, all radioisotopes have the potential to be hazardous, especially if inhaled or ingested. And that includes things like tritium and carbon-14. What you get exposed to external, externally is different than what happens internally. And the reason is the way in which cells are exposed. Um, Bio 101, and I won't go into that too much detail, but all cells of higher organisms, whether it's fish or corals, where I spend a lot of my time, or people, um, we have cells that have a nucleus in which a lot of our DNA for genetic information is housed. And then there are other types of DNA in the cell, including those that are held within the power cells, the power packs from the cell, which are called mitochondria. The way in which they react to even low-level um, emissions differs uh, tremendously. And so even though nuclear DNA has evolved protections to protect the genetic information, transferred from one generation to the next, the metabolic parts of our DNA and the mitochondria do not have those same protections. And that can lead to all kinds of sublethal problems. Cancer is something that most people are associating uh, with radiation, but there can be other metabolic problems and we have tools to be able to understand that now. And we really need to take this into account in anything going forward. This is not a chemistry experiment. This has real implications on ocean life and the human lives that are tied to our oceans now and into the future. That was Dr. Robert Richmond warning about the threat of radioactivity to our genetic health. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. Next, we hear from panel moderator Rhea Moss-Christian, 
who is former chair of the RMI National Nuclear Commission and incoming executive director of the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission. Dr. Moss Christian asked nuclear engineer Dr. Arjun Makajani how countries deal with radioactive wastewater as compared with what is proposed at the Fukushima Daiichi plant. What do we know about what other countries are doing that the, those that also might be producing nuclear wastewater, how are they storing or how are they dealing with any um, similar issues that, that might be happening in Fukushima, if at all? Well, you know, radioactive water is produced in nuclear reactors. Nuclear reactor primary water is discharged. Um, and it it's produced specially in plutonium separation plants, um, like in France and Britain, uh, Russia, Japan, and discharged into water bodies. And I'll pass it to Bob because I think he was most eloquent about that, that that this is, first of all, as Fran said, not a normal operation. So these are normal discharges. They're permitted by regulatory authorities. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. Um, I have um, had uh, much difficulty with the idea that tritium, which gets into our cells, should be discharged routinely into water bodies, including drinking water uh, supplies. Uh, it happens here in the United States and other places. Thanks. And Dr. Richmond, this is probably a question for you and a follow-up of what you've just mentioned, but is it a fair observation that the impacts on biota and human health resulting from Fukushima are different or similar from nuclear fallout from past wars and testing in the region? So is, the, is data a common issue in both? Um, the atmospheric testing was the worst. Um, when you take a look at the magnitude, the volume of the radionuclides dispersal, uh, when the testing went on in the Marshall Islands, in uh, French Polynesia, and other parts of the Pacific, it went around the world. They were picking up radionuclides in the Arctic tundra. Um, if you do a core in the Alawai Canal in Honolulu, you can find a layer of radiation, a radioactive uh, material that went around the world during these nuclear testing phases. Um, so the issue, once again, is one of cumulative impacts and continuing to add to the burden rather than subtract from it. And that's what we're very much looking at is mistakes were made and we can't go back in time. What we can control today is how we go forward. And that's why my feeling on that last slide is this is an opportunity. As much of a tragedy as it is, can't we take a good look and use this as an opportunity to examine new alternative routes other than just sticking it in the ocean because we just can't keep doing it. And it's not just radionuclides, it's mercury, it's pesticides, it's everything else. The ocean is becoming a soup and all people who depend on the ocean resources. So back to the radionuclide issue, the continued dumping in the ocean, I consider to be highly responsible. And I think we can do much better. Maybe Ken, now uh, you could talk about the values when we talk about atmospheric testing versus uh, these local events. Yeah, thanks, Bob. You know, as we've said, in terms of the total amount were, it's unprecedented, the amount that was shot off into the atmosphere and the return to land in the northern and southern hemisphere. That's truly global. Uh, but I also want to emphasize the difference in the character. We talked a little bit about cesium, strontium, iodine, different isotopes, and you get a different character of release from a hydrogen weapon. A lot more tritium came out of those uh, tests, with the hydrogen bombs in particular, in the 50s and 60s 
another isotope plutonium with a core of these nuclear weapons so it's plutonium and that's of course highly dangerous today some of those weapons testing sites are a larger source of plutonium than say fukushima ever was in 2011 there was almost no very hard to detect any plutonium coming from japan yet we had this background that was dominated by the testing so we couldn't detect the plutonium of 2011 over what was already there and a final point to that is that this tank water is unlike what happened in 2011 as well. So what we see in the tank is water that's hot and acidic that's interact with the core. And so you pick up some of these more calm refractories, oftentimes more dangerous elements like plutonium, like cobalt, like ruthenium. We never saw those in the ocean in 2011. That was more like explosion and overheating fires so things that are either a gas or volatile got into the atmosphere or in those waters. So we've kind of changed the character. And so while there are lessons to be learned from what happened to the radic in 2011, sometimes you can't apply those directly because what they're considering to release is quite different in terms of its character, chemistry, and accumulation. So that's another reason I'm kind of so stuck, as you've been hearing from the whole group, on knowing what's in those tanks. We really need to know that a lot better to really think about a fate in the ocean. That was Dr. Ken Buesler, oceanographer, sharing his concern that we still don't know exactly what radioactive materials are in the wastewater that TEPCO planned to release into the Pacific Ocean. You're listening to 3CR's Radioactive Show, distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next... Dr. Moss Christian asks about the IAEA, or International Atomic Energy Agency, and their role in monitoring any release of nuclear wastewater from Fukushima. A couple of questions have come in about the role of IAEA in the interactions that you've had with this international body that many of us, I believe, look to as rightly or wrongly as a watchdog. And, And we all understand that they are playing a role with the Japanese government here and, and you have had some interactions with them. So one of the questions is with respect to whether you requested to be included in the monitoring regime with IAEA for the releases and whether you have any comments on a, on a report that IAEA released in December on the safety-related aspects. I'll just make one comment to start and then I'll turn it over to my colleagues. If you go to the IAEA website, um, they indicate right in the upper right-hand corner, a World Center for Cooperation in Nuclear Field and seeks to promote the safe and secure and peaceful use of nuclear technology. So promote is right in their mission statement. The mission of the expert panel, of which four of us here today, was to advise the members of the Pacific Island Forum on the health and safety of that. So you see there's two different missions there. We're not judging them. We know they have some excellent scientists. We were actually able to speak uh, with one of them, Dr. Caruso, who was very forthcoming. And my understanding is he's not allowed to talk to us directly anymore, which says something. Um, But, you know, his position, um, we respect them as scientists. We respect the challenges they face. Uh, We respect Dr. Grossi. I mean, he had to go to Ukraine and deal with Chernobyl. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But this is an issue for us as scientists to look at the health and safety and alternatives, which is different than the promotion of the safe use. So there's a distinction there. 
my colleagues can jump in on this one. So the uh, the report that came out December 29th, I haven't looked at it in great detail, but I was encouraged the fact that it's talking about samples and interlaboratory comparisons. Um, however, I want to read it, reiterate that I'm still concerned about how TEPCO will handle a high throughput um, of, of, of samples and the fact that this is done so late in the game. Arjun? Yeah, let me make, so there is a, the conflict of interest was there with the Atomic Energy Commission in the United States, uh, and it was resolved by splitting up the Atomic Energy Commission, a promotion part, which is the Department of Energy, which deals with promoting nuclear energy, renewable energy, whatever, and then a regulatory part. That has not happened with the IAEA. The IAEA does, you know, isn't responsible for proliferating nuclear weapons. It's just responsible for monitoring that. And its record on the nuclear weapons issue is, is very good. Uh, but on nuclear power, it does have a conflict. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, it was very surprising the limited view that they took of how this should be monitored. And we were very troubled and concerned, and I at least was surprised that even the basic idea that we should know what's in the tanks now so we can be assured that the, that the filtration system will work, you know, with one or two passes and not 10 or 20 or 50, uh, even that has been set aside. We certainly, uh, I don't know that we've been invited to monitor with them. Uh, we certainly have been willing to sit down and talk with them in a conversation that we have not had. The last I heard was that, uh, I think Mr. Grossi said this, although I could stand to be corrected from the recording, that the IAEA is willing to sit down with anybody and somehow I thought that as a, as members of an appointed expert panel by the Pacific Islands Forum, which which has member governments in the region that are directly, conf that, that the IAEA should have said directly that we'd be happy to sit down and talk with you. That's not something to my knowledge that has occurred yet, but perhaps the secretariat might want to correct me. Yes, one final point. I've run a radioactivity lab that participates in their intercomparison. So they're very good technically, as you heard, in terms of testing methods and protocols and teaching those to other countries and other nations. That's one of their missions they do well. But I, I'm extremely disappointed in this idea that, you know, by the time they were to conduct any measurement in the ocean, it'd be too late. Uh, you've already started to release them. And so now's the time to be looking in those tanks that takes different protocols, different labs, different procedures. It also takes looking, whether you think you can remove all these other isotopes or think there's little harm, it still requires a monitoring assessment in the ocean. And what I've not seen, even though we're starting to hear some of the words about get out there before, during, and after, that's kind of new language, but the devil's in the details. They, they really focus on measuring tritium alone. Sometimes it's cesium. But given the variability that we've talked about, you'd want to have at least a few measurements for things that might bioaccumulate to a higher degree. Uh, Carbon-14 hasn't been very little done on that. Uh, Cobalt-60 in sediments. I mean, there's a lot of different things that their groups aren't looking at. So I don't consider them independent. And there's certainly 
too late if we're doing this after the release has already started. That's that's the worst sign that, to me of this whole review and approval that we're seeing from IAEA. Yeah, I really want to um, support what Ken just said. Monitoring doesn't prevent problems. It identifies when they occur. And so it's the same thing as saying, I'm going to smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and I'll get my annual chest x-ray. The chest x-ray doesn't protect you. It tells you when you have a lesion on your lung. And that's the problem with monitoring the way that we've been hearing it. We're going to be monitoring for negative effects when they occur. And what that tells you is you identify when the problem is there. It doesn't prevent the problem from occurring. So I think Ken's point is extremely important. Yeah, one, one thing as a scientist, if we found many basic scientific problems, you know, poor data quality, inadequate measurements, biased measurements, bias sampling time. And none of these seem to have troubled, not only TEPCO, they have an interest, they've decided to discharge, uh, but uh, they don't seem to have troubled the IAEA enough to stop. And I think as uh, Director General Grossi said, that they are the scientific authority. For a scientific authority to proclaim itself as such, a global scientific authority, to not be troubled by the volume and character of problems that we found, which have not been denied by anybody, to my knowledge, um, that is probably the most troubling thing. The IAEA should have stopped in its tracks and said, non-representative sampling, sludges, but that did not happen. And that, that should be shocking. That was Dr. Arjun Makajani, who, along with Dr. Ken Busler, Dr. Robert Richmond, and Dr. Ferenc Dalnoki Vares, make up the panel of independent scientific experts assisting Pacific Island Forum members regarding the Fukushima nuclear issue. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced on Naitahu, Natimamoi, and Waitaha lands for 3CR and distributed across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. That's it for today. The speakers you heard on the show were part of a public seminar which took place in January 2023. Much appreciation to the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat Office for giving permission for us to share this important information with you. This was the second part of a two-part series featuring these scientists, and I recommend checking out the first part, along with all our previous Rad Show podcasts, which can be found at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. If you want to get in touch with us, please email radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming 
becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.